With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Oh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to do what we always do here. Turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the things that matter, try to skip the things that do not matter, and try to discern the times we live in as best we can. Right after election, like we just had, it's a little hard to discern things. So let's talk about that for a second. You know, the blame game is what's really popular right now. Everybody wants to blame on the Republican side who's at fault for what happened. Of course, here's the thing is if you step back from a minute and observe the blame game, you can actually learn a lot from the blame game, like who's blaming who for what, because it tells you their motivations and it tells you where they're coming from. For example, folks that are saying, well, candidate choice doesn't really matter. The quality of candidates, that doesn't matter. And it's funny, those people are the people who were pushing really bad candidates that were not good candidates. So, of course, they don't want that to be the blame because that means it's their fault. What about the people blaming the higher-ups? Well, it's Mitch McConnell's fault. Well, it's Rick Scott's fault. Well, it's whoever's fault for not doing so and so and such and such. Well, those folks have motivations, too. Maybe they do have blame. If you're in leadership, of course you have blame. But they also have agendas because now they're all positioning for the next election. A lot of people want to blame former President Trump. I'm in that party, too. I think a lot of this was his fault. Folks are fed up with it and the way he's been conducting himself. So... But that's not an unbiased opinion. I think it'd be bad for the country if he runs again. He's going to, by the way. He's supposed to announce any minute now. But we'll see what happens there. But folks want to blame Trump because they have things. The blame game tells you a lot about people because who they are blaming usually has a lot to do with what they thought prior and whether what they thought came true. Now, everybody gets things right and wrongs in elections. We got a lot wrong in this election. We got a few things right in this election. There's nothing wrong with just admitting, hey, I wasn't right about that. I didn't have information I needed. The new information has come out and we need to all adjust to it. So let's adjust to the information as we have it. And a couple of things we all need to learn out of here. Number one, candidate selection matters a lot. It matters more than just about anything else. If you run a bad candidate, you deserve to lose the race, period. End of discussion. It doesn't matter if the other candidate is just as bad or not. You don't deserve to win. A lot of the other stuff in politics doesn't matter if you run a bad candidate, especially if you run a crazy candidate, a wackadoo candidate, or a candidate that's clearly unfit for office. If you parachute in a celebrity candidate who has no qualification for office other than their celebrity that's being parachuted in, get ready to lose because you deserve to lose. And even if it works, doesn't make it better. Quality in your candidates matter. Elections are all still local. Don't just show up with a national narrative or a big name endorsement and expect yourself to win. You have to reach people, especially these House districts, especially Senate races, even though those are statewide. You better dovetail your message to the local folks and the state folks in these races if you want their support. You can't just talk about national issues because the nationalization of the media and the nationalization of fundraising means it'll pull you away from the things that may actually matter just to them and maybe not to the rest of the country. So you end up making your donors happy, but none of the voters get disconnected from your message. So that's something everybody needs to learn. And also something we need to learn is we may need to throw out the old playbooks a little bit. 
Yes, cyclically and historically, this should have been a great time for the Republicans. And I think the Republicans lost this uh, election a lot more than the Democrats wanted. But let's look where we're at right now. The Democrats are going to keep control of the Senate. They may get it by 51 votes, depending on how the runoff in Georgia goes. The House is now being called by NBC News and other. It's going to be somewhere around 219 to 216. That's a razor thin majority for whoever becomes the speaker, if it's Kevin McCarthy or somebody else. This forthcoming Congress is going to be a hot mess of infighting, especially since we're coming up on a presidential election year, which who knows for the Republicans what that's going to entail. A lot of people are saying there's going to be a Republican civil war. I don't know if it's going to get to that. We know Trump's probably going to run. It's going to be a big hot mess, and they don't have a single vote to spare going into anything. And Kevin McCarthy, if he becomes the speaker, it's not going to have a good hold on his caucus. We'll see what the Democrats do if Nancy Pelosi comes back again. On the Senate side, of course, Mitch McConnell, is he going to be able to hold on to his position? He can if he wants to, but he's going to have his hands full. He has people like Rick Scott, who should be shouldering a lot of the blame, trying to transfer it over to Mitch McConnell instead, who jumped in and tried to save some of these races as best he could. But the old playbooks maybe don't apply as much now. The world's changing a little bit. Folks are more informed than ever. Folks are in an economic situation they're not usually accustomed to. And mostly, this may be the most important part, big picture. If you step back and you just look at it, folks are tired of chaos. Folks don't want more extremism. Whenever the extremism got on the ballot, for the most part, it lost. The loudest screeching voices lost. In tough times and turbulent economies and things like this, the more crisis is around, the more people want steady. They want dependable. They want reliable. And if you start putting wackadoo on the ballot or you put celebrity candidate on the ballot or you put election denialism on the ballot or you put wackadoo craziness on the ballot, you're going to lose. Get to the kitchen table issues, economy, people's cost of living their future, their children's future, the country's future. That's where the middle of the country is. And here's the thing. It's very apparent neither political party can win with just their base. There's going to be a lot of calls on the Republican side that, well, we need to write off the country and just stick to your base. Well, you'll never win another election again because that's not how it works. Whoever wins independence and gets a little bit of crossover vote wins national elections. It's just that simple. It's so boring, people don't want to talk about it, but it's just the truth. President Biden won because he got some independence and he got a few crossover votes because people thought he was not Donald Trump and he won. Donald Trump won because he got independent votes and some crossover votes because he was not Hillary Clinton. This seems to be a pattern that's forming here. Will it hold up again with President Biden running maybe against President Trump again? We will see. But the truth is, if you can't reach out, you can't bring other people in, you're not going to win. And you can't do that running crazy, running lunatics, and running outsiders who people locally are going to see as just that. Somebody airdropped in to try to win an election. I doubt these lessons get learned because there's a lot of money in doing it the other way. But if you really want to learn the lessons, it's not just in the politics and the policies. It's in all those items right there. Pay attention to the local elections. Elections are still local. Candidate quality matters more than just about anything else. And turn down the noise 
and get to what really matters in elections, having good candidates on the topics at hand, running good, clean campaigns. You do anything else, if you lose, it's on you. Won't hurt tell right after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP SmartSide today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Uh, this is a topic I'm not going to spend a lot of time on right now because we're working on it as a much bigger thing for later. But this is one of the most important stories in geopolitics right now, and it's not getting covered a whole lot. So I wanted to just touch on it. Over in The Guardian, there's a piece out. This was written by um, Julian Borger uh, in Washington. But here's what's happening. I'm going to summarize a little bit. I'll link to the piece. Please read the whole thing. It's really good. India is about to surpass China as the most populous nation on earth. Now, why is this important? It's important on a couple of levels. One is, of course, America's great economic foe in the world right now is, of course, China. China has some built-in advantages economically the last few years. One is they have a communist dictatorship who completely controls their country and can dictate how their economy functions to a great degree to the most minute detail. They have a 700 million strong workforce, and that communist dictatorship allows them to greatly control that workforce to be very productive. Um, they have been doing some things lately. Of course, a lot of people are worried about China's military, and is there going to be war with China and Chinese's uh, very imperialistic expansion all over the world? They're trying to export their influence worldwide for a lot of reasons. There was recently a picture over the weekend of Xi Jinping and his uh, higher level folks all in military fatigues and folks went, oh, is this what? Listen, everybody calm down a little bit on one thing. Yes, China's a dangerous foe, but projecting military strength to hide your weaknesses is the oldest trick in the dictator playbook. 
We just learned this watching Russia, where they have been pounding their chest about how great their military is for years and years and years. And they've been getting their butts kicked all over Ukraine for the better part of nine months now. And we found out they were a paper bear. Now, is of China, maybe. There sure is a lot of them. They can certainly do a lot of damage. Listen to some of the things in this piece, though. Good perspective here. China will still be a great economic power. This is from The Guardian. The one to challenge the United States for full superpower status, but it will no longer be able to call itself the largest nation by sheer numbers. On present trends, the population gap will widen rapidly, but what that will mean for their relative clout in the world will be decided by a host of factors. Demographics are not destiny. However, the moment the baton is passed in India, it will plant a seed of doubt. By the way, India is the world's largest democracy, and even though they're going to be the world's uh, largest by population, their economy has immense room to grow. Their economy is actually smaller than a lot of countries, a fraction of their size. It's a economic explosion just waiting to happen once India fully develops. But we'll talk about that some other time. However, the moment the baton is passed to India, it will plant a seed of doubt, hinting at the possible limits of China's relentless rise in the 21st century. China's population, 1.4 billion, is expected to start shrinking soon and then at an increased rate. Not only will Chinese population shrink, but its age profile will change. The bulge will no longer be in the working age generation. But increasingly, among elderly, the number of Chinese citizens over 65 will be more than double by 2050, from 150 million to 330 million. By the way, there's only 330 million Americans right now to give you an idea of the scale we're talking here. There will be fewer and fewer people whose labor will support more and more retirees. The profile will cease to resemble an onion dome on a Russian church and start to look like a kite or a coffin. The Chinese leadership could find ways of allowing the country to grow through the increasing the productivity of those in work, but that would take capital and much more and more of it as time goes. China is in a race, trying to get rich before it gets old. Through that prism, China's military spending is a bet that it will bend a large part of the world to its will so that it gains privileged access to resources. But if that bet fails, Beijing will have spent a lot of capital that it could have been used to adapt its economy to an encroaching limits, leaving the country stuck in a middle income trap. India will face similar dilemmas as its population grows. There will be more Indians of a working age in relation to elderly patients, but the leadership will have to be agile to reap the demographic dividends. We go back to that sentence for a second. Expending a lot of capital in the military instead of adapting its economy. We saw this with the Soviet Union. We saw it with Russia just now. China is in a little bit of a dangerous predicament. Now, they've got great influence and a great economy to balance this out that the Soviet Union never dreamed of. But math is still math, and they've got danger coming. And the posing of a dictatorship to try to project world power while your underpinnings at home start to erode away and change spell some danger. So no, we shouldn't fear China. We should see it for what it is realistically and adapt ourselves and our policies to it and understand they're not infallible, they're not indestructible, and they certainly are not inevitable. China's path forward does not mean world domination. China's path forward means they're going to have the same problems every other country has, and we should adapt to it, quit being scared to death of them, change our policies to match them, and if they want to be an economic, political, and human rights foe, treat them as such. And we can win it economically, and we can win it through human rights, and we can win it on all stages if we clear-eyed see China for what they are, not just what they project on their propaganda, and not just what the fear mongers and propagandists want us to believe. More Hurtel right after this.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're going back over to the UK because enough of our hot mess. Let's go make fun of somebody else's because it'll make <laughs> us feel better about ourselves, America. We go to our friend in the UK, Lettuce Bromofsky. Love having her on another one of our great Young Voices contributors. She has been doing so much UK media. I can't even link to it, but I'm going to link to her Young Voices page. You can go look. She's all over the place over there. You're a superstar, my friend. Look at you. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Thanks very much. And I'm delighted to be back on again. So here's the thing. We had planned on after our midterm election, I was going to bring you on and we were going to do a first 90 days of Liz Trust thing. Yeah, exactly. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was that was shambolic, to say the least, I would say. Um, she was in there. She is the shortest prime minister that we ever ended up having in there. And it all really just came crashing down around her. And I, I mean, I'm not going to come out and defend her in any way, but the mini budget of hers came out um, and it just sort of exploded back in her face. But I, I would argue, and from my beliefs, it wasn't because of the contents of it. It was the way and the lack of communication that she came through with that. And from there, she just couldn't quite get it back at all, really. She had everyone kind of against her. There were just too many issues. She then had to backtrack on her um, 45p rate of in ta um, income tax rate. She was going to cut it to 40p, sorry. Um, and she had to backtrack on that. And then she had to fire her um, Chancellor of the Exchequer. And then another person came in um, and he basically just sort of changed it all around and went back on a lot of her promises from the election. So then the people who had voted her in felt betrayed and the public were angry. Her own house was angry. Um, and yeah, it just fell apart from there, really. Yeah, it, it was remarkable to what we we now have some perspective on it. So there's a couple of things here. When we had you on both during the electoral run in the party and then when after Liz Truss came into power, we talked about this. The whole mm -hmm. dynamic of that party election was Rishi Sunak had the backing of the MPs. She had yeah. the wider party and it switched once it went to our. It is very apparent the MPs never really backed her. Now, she walked into a lot of that with her own mistakes and that didn't help any. But it's just very apparent she she pretty much didn't have a chance from the go because those MPs were never really behind her for it to fall apart that fast. So that leaves us to Richie Sunak. He had mm -hmm. the he had the support to get into power. We're about three weeks in right now, almost four weeks. He's going to clear the forty five day mark, low bar I know. <laughs> um, but getting elected into power and then getting support once you're in power is two different things. Does he have the support he needs to? function not even succeed because we know it's still an uphill burner is it a functional majority is it a functional government right now in the house of parliament so as you say on a lot of those points like it's a very low bar that he's got to clear and in some ways he's quite fortunate in the fact that anything he does is being compared to liz truss's very short premiership which did nothing really seems to go very well in that so anything he sort of does seems to be on the up he also did have the majority of MPs supporting him. The issue he has right now is um, opposition parties saying that he hasn't been elected by anyone to be in that position. So Liz Truss at least was elected by party members. Boris Johnson was elected by the public to be in there, you know, had the greatest mandate they've seen for three decades. Rishi, on the other hand, hasn't been elected by anyone except the MPs. So when he came in, it was said that if he was the only um, person running, 
we had this whole debacle about whether Boris Johnson would make a comeback at this point. Um, and it said they made a very tight deadline. They only had a week to get 100 MPs to support them. If you didn't have 100 MPs, you couldn't go forward and win the leadership to be in it. And if only one person went forward, it wouldn't go to the membership at all. Um, and instead, that person would be, you know, crowned the Prime Minister of the UK. And that's what happened. So Rishi was the only one who got 100 MPs to support him. So he did have the backing. And in fact, at the end of it, he had something like 160 MPs supporting him, which is over half of the MPs needed. What's happening now is he's under a lot of pressure to do something, but essentially not do anything too quickly, if that makes sense. So Liz Truss came out and she did everything really quickly, too quickly, that she didn't bring the public along with her. People need change. We're in this cost of living crisis. We've got the, a prime example of this is COP27, which happened just a, a few weeks ago, maybe just last week, actually. Um, and he said he wasn't going to COP because he had too much to handle back home in the UK with the cost of living. And people were obviously slightly annoyed about this, but some people were on side. You know, there were pros and cons on both sides of the argument for going. Um, however, he ended up flip-flopping around that and then changing his mind on that. And that was something that he's been heavily criticised for. That was this sort of first U-turn, essentially, in this, whereas you need to be able to go forward. Whatever you choose to do, do it with confidence and do it with conviction and bring people along with you. He ended up going... Again, that's completely fine, but it was a perfect example of he's still on unsure footing of where he stands on a lot of these things. He was a Chancellor Exchequer. He might not know very strongly what his environmental policy should be. And so he's kind of unsure going forward. Part of that, too, and you just touched on it. Look, this stuff is optics, especially after, you know, the flip flopping or the U-turn, as y'all call it. We call it mm -hmm. flip flopping over here. You know, the back and forth stuff just kills you optically. It yeah. killed Liz Truss. As soon as she started backtracking, you know, the policy doesn't even matter. Once that just looks so bad, you're done. There's another optical problem looming for Rishi Sunak right now, and it comes with his cabinet and his ministers and his appointees. Look, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. So we got to back up. Boris Johnson, rightfully, by the way, got all kinds of hell because it came out that he had, you know, supported and ran a little cover for an appointee to get his votes and support. We've already had the Braverman thing happen again with the security stuff. Now we have the Williamson thing. Mm. If you're going to come in with, I'm not going to flip flop and I'm going to be on integrity. Well, you can't flip flop on a major trip overseas, which by the way, that's a big deal because the logistics of those things are a pain. I'm an old logistics guy. I'll tell you from firsthand experience, those aren't fun to plan yeah. and then replan and do again. And then you have these two appointments that are already making press not a good start and it's opening wounds that have not already healed. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. And specifically on Gavin Williamson, which has very much been in the headlines this week. Um, essentially, this was a man, he's been in politics for a while. He's been sacked twice from ministerial positions. Once was when he breached national security um, as defence secretary and once when he was education secretary under Boris Johnson. And essentially, he just did an absolutely terrible job. Um, but this is a terrible look for Rishi. Again, um, back we look back just like you're saying, three weeks to his first speech um, on the steps of Downing Street, where he said, I'm going to run this government with integrity. And like that's going to be the basis of it. He was very clearly trying to position himself away from the scandals that we saw under the Boris Johnson's premiership and all the issues that came along with that. Um, and yet Gavin Williamson has come out, there have been uh, leaked text messages, sorry, which show him 
hurling abuse essentially at um, the then chief whip, Wendy Morton, about not being invited to the Queen's funeral. Um, but that seems to be just the sort of tip of the iceberg on this. And since this has come out, um, there have been more and more um, allegations, one of them of which said that he um, told a senior civil servant to slit their throat. Um, he's also been accused of using uh, MPs' private lives essentially against them um, and encouraging negative press stories about difficult backbenchers to go out. And these are just a few of the allegations that have been going around against him. So it's sort of confusing to me how after not only being sacked twice from senior positions, he managed to find his way back into Rishi's cabinet as the minister without portfolio. Um, and it's a little bit confusing as how that we got to that position. Not good. Here's another bubbling problem that got left over, and this one hasn't gotten as much coverage, at least overseas, and frankly, not too much in the press over there. We were talking about this way back in the spring, but Northern Ireland's a mess, and it's a festering mess because it's not being dealt with. We dealt with this with our friend Connor Duffy way back in the spring. We were talking about this, that, yeah. hey, the Boris Johnson government's just kind of kicking the can on this. They're just kind of refusing yeah. to deal with it. We know about the Sinn Féin elections. We know about the problems within the union folks up there. Rishi Sunak needs to deal with this. I know he's got all this other crap going on, but th this is something that he's just going to, this is a grenade with the pin pulled. If he ignores this, he is going to be meeting with Michael Martin. That's been arranged now that got announced recently. The EU seems like they're actually going to be somewhat helpful here instead of fighting them. Like they, I know the Brexit stuff taints that, but it looks like they're going to set that aside and go, okay, we're going to help you fix this. This isn't getting press, but this is a very big deal and, and a very big potential problem for this administration. Isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and this, as you're saying, has been a problem that has been persistent for a good few years now. In 2017, Sinn Féin actually refused to come back to the executive for three years um, over a, a green a green scandal that was going on at the time. And then also there was COVID in the middle of this. And then we've now had eight months of the DUP refusing to go back to the executive, um, not just for you know the people of Sinn Féin, but these businesses, people need decision making. The, the health service, the uh, Northern Ireland has actually the longest waiting times out of the whole of um, United Kingdom for waiting time to see a doctor. Um, you know, they've got all these problems that are persisting, which might not be resolved from just getting them back into the executive, but it would certainly help to ease these problems. Chris Heaton-Harris, who is the Northern Ireland Secretary, um, has come out and he is, a, it feels almost as though he is opposed to calling another election. Calling another election right now would cost the government £6.5 million. So, and considering they only had one, uh, you know, a few short months ago, this seems like the wrong step to be going in when everyone's in a cost of living crisis, everyone's financially struggling, and realistically having another election, it wouldn't change necessarily the result. So what we have right now is the DUP have 25 seats and Sinn Féin have 27 seats. So there is very much power sharing going on at the moment.
Um, and what they found from the last election was that actually the DUP lost votes, not to Sinn Féin, but to their more right wing um, sort of sister party called um, the D Unionist Voice, sorry, uh, the TUV, the, tr uh, the traditional Unionist Voice, sorry. <laughs> um, and so they were actually lost about 60,000 voters to them and likelihood is that it, they could get a few more back. But it's not going to change the balance that's currently in place there. Um, but you made a really important point, which I want to touch on, is that Northern Ireland is not feeling in any way uh, respected or uh, appreciated, you could say, by the rest of the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson once said that over my dead body would we have a border in the Irish Sea. And yet that's exactly what we have right now. Things like steel has a tariff of 25% when it's coming just from England into Northern Ireland. We're meant to be one country here, and yet they've got massive, massive tariffs, which makes it much more difficult to build schools, to build houses, hospitals, you, you name it. All those things are going up in price alongside the cost of living crisis that we're seeing, meaning it's just so much more difficult to do anything. So Rishi actually is in Blackpool. He was there today, as you said, he's meeting with the Irish Prime Minister. Um, and this is the first time that the Prime Minister has gone to the British Irish Council, which is what the meeting he's at at the moment is called, um, since 2007. So it's been a very long time. And at this council, there are representatives from Wales, Scotland, Ireland. So it's very much about bringing them back together. But it's going to be hugely important to what they do next because Northern Ireland is not feeling appreciated for what it does and what's currently in place is just not working. Uh, Lettuce Bromowski breaking down a whole lot of territory here, more territory to go. You just touched on this as part of the Northern Ireland mess is what do they do with the National Health Service? Y'all got a pending nurses strike, it looks like. This is really a mess. This is here. Here we go again. Problems with the NHS has been brewing for a long, long time. There's some real nuances here that we just can't get into. Like, you know, the actual unions themselves, it's almost a 50-50 split. There's legalities on what kind of a strike yeah. it really would be. It's not going to be all the hospitals. Um, it does look like it's going to involve St. Thomas's, which those of you that aren't familiar with London, if you've got the real prime offices in Westminster, you're looking across the river at St. Thomas's. So that's going to be nice and high profile for the MPs. What do we do with this? We know we've dealt with a rail strike on and off pretty much all summer and fall over there. <laughs> this this could get ugly in a really big hurry. Yeah, and I think the initial feeling is that this is slightly more pressing than perhaps a rail strike. You know, if our nurses are all striking, what happens to all of those people who are unwell? Um, we, we There is a clear systemic problem within the NHS, um, and that I think is known by a lot of people. It needs reform. Um, the nurses are currently going on strike and they're asking for a 17% pay rise. So inflation at the moment is around 12% and they're asking for 5% more than that. But that is a phenomenal pay rise on top of you know what you're earning at the moment. And quite frankly, we're not sure that that would be affordable to come straight out of the government purse. Um, what we're seeing is that the NHS right now is where the reform needs to be and all the money that's being um, funded into that. You know, the NHS by no means is underfunded. And so there needs to be reform to find the money within the NHS to then be given to these nurses for, for um, an additional pay. 
we we need our NHS to work. You know, it's not going to get any better by losing any of this workforce. We've got eight million people on waiting lists at the moment for um, services across the UK. Today, actually, there's came out that the average waiting times for ambulances have reached their highest ever. You know, these are things we need to make the NHS more sustainable. And I think actually, usually I'm I'm entirely opposed to striking, and I'm entirely opposed to striking now. But I think that NHS nurses do potentially need a pay rise. There was that in the pandemic, they asked for a pay rise. So this sort of 17% hasn't come out of nowhere. And they have been asking for one for years. And in the pandemic, when they were working throughout that and working really hard, um, they were offered what I thought was a bit of a snub, a 1% pay rise after everything that they had done for the country throughout those years. Um, and I think that, you know, we want to be getting the best people in there. A bit like I feel the same, actually, about um, politicians' pay salaries. I think they should be paid more. We want the best people in there that we can. Last year, the UK lost 40,000 nurses um, just leaving the industry. That's that's not sustainable. We need to get them back in. I think maybe a bit of a pay rise would be the answer here. Yeah. Lettuce Bromowski joining us. To be fair, we're about to have ourselves a rail strike here in America, too. So it's not just your <laughs> issues. Just one quick question, put a bow on this. You know, every election, it's what do you do with the NHS? We mm. we hear it every time now. Have we gotten to the point in the UK where it's just such an unmanageable beast? It's so big. It's so important. You can't unintegrate it. Is there some kind of a actual management problem with how the government deals with the NHS besides the politics? Because now it's just everybody talks about it and the problem goes down the road. Well, sometime, at some point, it's not going to go down the road anymore. I know that's a really big question and a really big problem long term for the UK. But at some point, somebody's going to have to address this because this can't this is unsustainable right now, isn't it? Yeah, you make you make such a good point. And that's sort of exactly it, is that no one can reform the entirety of our health service within one um one four year stint within office. And so in so many ways, everyone does this sort of tinkering around the edges of the health service and pushes it down being like, in case someone else comes into power, it won't be our issue. Whoever's next, it won't be our issue kind of thing. And it does take, and it's gonna take a lot of strength of a government, particularly maybe one right now when they've got such a high mandate to really go in there and reform it, get rid of all the paperwork, the bureaucracy, the waste that's going on. We've got some NHS executives who are being paid £260,000 a year. Take some of their extra high salary and, you know, redistribute it. There is no shortage of funding in the NHS and the money can be found somewhere. Uh, Lettuce Promoski joining us. Okay, a little lighter topic uh, to round off because that was a lot of heavy stuff. <laughs> Let's talk Matt Hancock. Um, for the uninitiated, because I wasn't either until this popped off, um, <laughs> there's a TV show over there. We had a version of it for a while. It didn't do as well as it does over there. Uh, I'm a celebrity. Get out of here. One of these reality shows. They're going to go drop a bunch of people off in the Australian jungle, right? Well, Matt Hancock's is sitting in Pete. Now, 
all due respect to the good folks of West Suffolk, who I'm sure are outstanding folks. I don't know if that qualifies you as a celebrity, but he was a formal <laughs> health secretary. He is a sitting member of parliament and he's going on a reality show. Now, this cost him uh, the Tory whip, which is a mm. figurative thing for those of you from Logan. Although Rishi Sunak probably wishes it's a literal thing he could take to his head for getting this headache put upon him. What do we do with this? Because, of course, there's the thing about, well, politics is already a reality show, but this is an actual literal reality show and an MP, and he's getting paid to do it, which I think is where you're probably your moral issue is going to be more than anything else. You know, Rishi yeah. Sunak did not need this. He's got it. What do we do with this Matt Hancock story? Because this people are having fun with this, but it is kind yeah. of a serious issue. It's totally a serious issue. And I think the person who's risking the most is actually Matt Hancock himself. Matt Hancock here is a very um, controversial figure in some ways. He was our health secretary over the vast majority of the pandemic. And he had a major fall from grace, essentially, when he um, was caught having an affair on CCTV with his aide at the time. And this was also a time when he had implemented a rule that said, you cannot be within two meters of anyone to stop the spread of COVID. There it was in his office at work court, you know, and it was it was a horrendous and it was all over the front pages, this affair that he was having. He resigned then in 2021. And, you know, like most people, you would expect that would be the end of him. Um, but he's back. And I'm a Celebrity is I've never actually watched I'm a Celebrity. And the first show with Matt coming on aired last night. I did watch it. And I mean, it was just fascinating. It was so sort of gripping. He had to do all these challenges where all bugs were just essentially thrown all over him. Um, but it's, caught, it's ruffled a lot of feathers within the Tory party. Um, you know, like you say, he has a constituency of people he's meant to be looking after. He's being paid for a job and he's being paid £85,000 a year for that job. And he's just sort of ran off to the jungle for a little bit. Um, and that he's being also paid £400,000 by the show to go on. So making him, I think, the second highest um, celebrity, if you can call them that. They're all very sort of second rate celebrities, I would say, um, on the show. It is believed that this money will in part go to a hospice within his constituency. Um, and he also, when he arrived in the jungle, got a particularly frosty reception from the people who were in the jungle because of how people have perceived him since the pandemic. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think a lot of MPs don't want, or a lot of people, they don't want MPs to think that this is an acceptable path to go down, you know. Being a politician is meant to be a very respectable job here, meant to be very, um, uh, you know, down the straight and narrow, helping people and being a sort of celebrity on the side. That's not really what the job's about. But as you say, Boris Johnson was essentially this comedic person throughout his entire premiership. Um, he was putting on his own show. He was making the entirety of government seem like some sort of reality TV show. Um, and so isn't this sort of just part of our normal lives at this point? Well, I can't say he's camera shy after the CCT <laughs> footage. So, but <laughs> I, I think there's a debate to be had there. Yes. Yes. It's a reality TV show. Yes. New newstainment is a thing. We're doing it right now. You know, we're, we're mm -hmm. doing news and stuff. We're trying to make it entertaining at the same time because we don't want to be boring about it. So there is an entertainment thing to it. I think when you start getting paid for it, I think when you do it to deflect from a scandal, I think when you do it at a time of crisis, which I don't think by any definition of the world, you couldn't say the UK is having a political crisis that every member of parliament should be spending every waking minute dealing with the economic and political turmoil right now. And you're out in Australia. Like I, 
Yeah. And Blaming's a lot of it. Yeah. Next week, actually, um, Rishi Sunak has his autumn budget coming out, and people are sort of saying he should be here for this. Parliament is currently sitting, and you know, this is a very important time, the last mini budget by Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss. We saw how badly that went down. This is a very tense moment for the government. And that is part of the reason why he's had this whip removed from him. You know, they think it's unacceptable. And whether he'll get that back, that's only, you know, time will tell kind of thing. Yeah, we'll see what his constituency in West Suffolk think of all this next time we have an election. Mm, exactly. uh, speaking of which, the general election stuff has tapped down a little bit, which we kind of knew that was going to die off. They weren't going to do a snap election after that hot mess. Nobody really wanted to do that, except maybe Keir Starmer. Yeah. Um, going forward into the new year, because the way you just mentioned, the way the calendar sets up for the way Parliament does things, we're going to have another budget fight here in about a week. And then you're going to be getting into the holidays. Things should settle down a little bit, but you'll have all that economic news through the holiday season. The first of the year is lining up to be very, very turbulent. What should we be looking for as outside observers? Give me one or two things, kind of guideposts to check in on the Rishi Sunak uh, era. Mm. Is it going well? Is it going poorly? Is he getting traction? Is he falling behind? Give us one or two things to look at between now and kind of the first of the year as they navigate that. You already mentioned that the budget fight's coming. Yeah. And then you're going to have the holidays, which is going to be economic stories nonstop about how people can't afford Christmas. We, we know that's all coming. Then it's going to be the heating stuff, right? Yeah. These, what should we watch for under that noise, though? The, the, the major stories and the things that he will be struggling with massively is what to do about the cost of living crisis. We already got sort of £400 blanket um, across everyone to help with their energy bills. Um, there is current whisperings going on that he will actually increase that top rate of income tax to 50%. So Liz Truss tried to take it down to 40, it is at 45, and he wants to actually increase it to 50%. This would be higher than it was under the last Labour government. Um, there is also the fact um, of a windfall tax that he's hoping to put in place. There's been a lot of uh, conversations going on about the environment, as we were saying earlier in the podcast, that um, there was this COP27, which he ended up going to in the end. They reinstated the ban on fracking that Liz Truss had removed. Um, and now he's expected to be putting in a windfall tax on a lot of these higher companies. So if we take Shell, for example, um, they last year recorded a profit of £30 billion. So an absolute massive profit. And yet none of this seemed to fall under the windfall tax that we have at the moment. Um, and they're, they're, they've actually come out and said, you know, we're willing to pay more. We are doing so well at the moment that we are willing to um, pay a bit of money back to the government to help people through these times. So that is likely something to come out. And obviously, there is always the ongoing international issue with Ukraine and Russia um, and how that handles, how that continues to play out, what sort of level of support and spending that Rishi will be willing to commit to them um, is going to be a big, a big one for the winter. Yeah. One more last big picture question for you, the two. Just as an outside observer, though, um, is it time for the EU and, and the UK to just start playing nice and figure this thing out? Because this has been going for a while. Breakfast, bre breakfast, <laughs> <laughs> play on word. I was thinking biscuit. Bre Brexit was what it is. It's been a couple of years. At some point, y'all just got to figure out a way to work together. Yeah. 
Completely. I completely couldn't agree more. That's, you know, the dream, the ideal um, image right now. One thing which I hope is a step in the right direction for this is that Rishi Sunak um, and the French president are actually engaging in talks again to try and help with our immigration problem um, that we're having at the moment. And for a long time, I remember last year, there were actually video footage came out of French police standing by on the beach as boats of illegal immigrants crossed into the channel and went off towards the UK. Um, and it was a very sort of tense time between the two governments. Rishi has said that they're looking to open these talks again. And I think that's a step in the right direction. We need to get along with these people. They live a mere 20 miles away from us, just over the channel. Um, and it's so important to have these relationships. And it was actually something that Liz Trust was really bad at. I mean, spectacularly bad at actually was being able to communicate and have good relationships with these people. Um, Macron, she embarrassed him when she was doing leadership elections, saying that the jury was still out on whether they would be friends or not. She did the same thing for Nicola Sturgeon um, up in Scotland. You know, that's not how you work together on such a global level as we do at the moment. Um, so I think it's really important and definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah, our friend Les from Mosky. We've had her on quite a bit because things are busy over there. Tell you what, fair's fair. You pick something you want to talk about in America, and I'll give you free reign. We did that before our election. <laughs> had a couple of our UK friends take some shots at us because we got some mess going on too. Let's just be honest about it. Mm. Uh, so you pick something. We'll have you back on. We'll talk a little American politics too. We love that. You're always welcome. We greatly enjoy your insight. Just take my word for it. She's been all over media over there, rising media superstar. That's why we get her now. We want to be friends. We want to be in on the ground level. Uh, let folks know where they can follow and keep up with you until we see you again, my friend. Yes. The best place to follow me would be on my Twitter account, which is at L Um, And that's where I post all of my, all my shows and everything. Yep, we're going to link to her Young Voices page, too, because it's got a lot of those media hits yeah. overseas. I take in a lot of UK media. I suggest other people do as a lot. Growing UK media, a lot of new platforms over there, too. Good stuff. Mm. Les Bromofsky, always enjoy talking, my friend. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Let's end on a good note, shall we? Uh, let's go out to Ohio. Kevin Fisher was to be released from prison in January 2019 after serving 26 years. He knew he wanted his first meal to be from hot chicken takeover, boneless chicken, mac and cheese, and coleslaw. Classic. What gravitated him towards the restaurant more than anything was what it stands for. During his sentence, the founder, Joe Delos, came to speak to him and fellow inmates about how the company has an equal employment policy and welcomes those who have faced incarceration, drug addiction, or homelessness as employees. Fast forward a few years later, Fisher 
leads at one of the restaurant's location, Bloomberg reports. Initially started as a dishwasher, the 60-year-old climbed his way to become a general manager at Hot Chicken Takeover's Columbus Crew Stadium location. Uh, that's the uh, soccer team up there, for those of you from Logan. Uh, back to the piece. All a person wants when they get out is a chance at life, Fisher said. I told Joe before, Hot Chicken Takeover take, changed my life. He always says you can change your life and makes me sit back and think, you know, I did it. But I always can say it's with the help of Hot Chicken Takeover. Delos's intention behind found, founding Hot Chicken Takeover was to combat the lack of career opportunities that individuals such as Fisher faced. With seven locations and three upcoming ones, the outlet notes that almost 40% of its 172 workers have come out of the justice system. What's more, Hot Chicken Takeover provides referrals to mental health counseling and housing services, emergency cash assistance, and savings matching programs. I just felt a lot more compelled by the impact economy opportunity and mobility could provide along somebody's journey in life, Delos said. I had just really formed a thesis that if you can be positive, supportive employer to a community of people in need of positive and supportive work opportunities, you can build a strong, reliable team. I love it. Good folks trying to help out other folks, giving people second, third, even fourth chances, letting them work for what they get. The dignity of work is very important to folks trying to rebuild their lives. We have all the data in the world. It's good common sense, and it's good when we see folks doing it. Good for Kevin, good for the company. If there's one near you, go support them. Nothing wrong with a little extra chicken in your life. Can't go wrong there. That'll do it for Hertel uh, for this day. Anything you need to find Hertel related, you can get it out there now. We're on all the podcasting platforms. The YouTube channel has extra goodies on there that the podcasts don't get. The podcasts get things like twice on Sunday, the recap show that ain't on YouTube. So make sure you sign up for both. Make sure you subscribe. It's always free. Make sure you let somebody know about it. Leave a comment and a rating if you would. That'd be great. We'd appreciate that greatly. Also, uh, make sure you follow our radio supporter, Big Talker FM, and we'd also appreciate it if we could hear from you directly uh, at hertelshowgmail.com, hertelshow at the Twitter. Let us know. We've done whole segments and shows just based off feedback and what y'all want to talk about, hear about, or think isn't being discussed enough. We'll keep doing it as long as you keep listening. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed, and we'll see you next time for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.